to the victor go the spoils. This was, you know, exactly what the Monuments Men believed in part they were working against in, in pushing back the Nazis during the war. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was Dr. Peter Bell with the Cincinnati Art Museum, who co-curated the exhibition entitled Paintings, Politics, and the Monuments Men, the Berlin Masterpieces in America, which was inspired by a controversial post-World War II exhibition in the States. We discussed the political motivations that may have been behind that post-World War II exhibition, the strong stance the Monuments Men took by signing the Wiesbaden Manifesto, which promoted a country's right to keep its cultural patrimony, and the powerful role of provenance research in understanding the meaning of an object as it changes over time. Dr. Peter Bell, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Would you start with a description of what inspired the Paintings, Politics, and Monuments Men exhibition that's currently on view? Uh, yes, it's uh, there's a local connection to this story, and that's that's what sort of got us uh, working on this exhibition. Um, a group of community members, supporters of the museum, um, came to our director, Cameron Kitchen, uh, several years ago when he had just uh, sort of come into the post here in Cincinnati and said, have you heard the story of uh, the Monuments Man, Walter Farmer, and the Wiesbaden Manifesto? And and he hadn't. And and so uh, they told him this, this story that's sort of at the heart of this exhibition. And uh, and so we started running with it from there. I wasn't on staff yet at the museum, but uh, Cameron sort of started looking into whether this could be uh, the right kind of a project for an exhibition and a publication um, and brought on Christy Nelson, who's my co-curator and, and co-editor of the of the book. And, um, and then a, a year or so later, I came onto the team. And uh, so the the genesis of the exhibition is a, a, a local connection and great interest in the community and support um, from that direction. And the original exhibition from the 40s had a lot of uh, ethical questions that were swirling around it. I wonder how you have approached that in the current exhibition. Yeah, well, yeah, it's as Christy and I were working on this project it, it it started off um we we thought okay um the Wiesbaden manifesto here's a protest document um drafted and signed by a number of the monuments men who were active uh at right after the war in in occupied germany uh here's a protest document that 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 they sort of put their foot down and say this uh this action that's going to be taken by the us military is not is not right. It's not what uh, America stands for. It's not why we just finished fighting this war uh, in Europe to, you know, save the uh, art and civilization among, uh, along with human life and, and culture. Um, and we thought, okay, this is, you know, this, this, this seemed like the right, the right thing for, 
for them to be doing. This is a pretty clear uh, instance of, um, for whatever reasons, the the the, uh, the U.S. Army not really doing the right thing at this important moment in the war. Um, but then, as we started working on the project more and 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 really sort of teasing out what happened to the paintings that were transferred out of Germany, the Berlin 202, as they were called, um, we started teasing that out and realizing that, well, a, a couple of years later, as you mentioned in 1948 and 49, these paintings toured the United States and almost two and a half million people saw them and it enriched their lives. And there was this amazing access to one of the great collections of uh, art in Europe. It's amazing access for people in the United States who might not have been able to travel to Berlin, even if they're, if, you know, Europe wasn't laid waste at that moment. So to our minds, there became this real, this sort of, you know, the, the, this sort of two-sided uh, uh, issue. I mean, I think that the, uh, we can talk about, you know, what exactly the Wiesbaden Manifesto was protesting and what happened to these paintings, but it seemed on the one hand that this, you know, that it was not the right action uh, on the part of the U, on the part of the Truman administration and the, and the, and the U.S. military in Germany uh, to remove these paintings, which were property of the German people uh, from German soil in 1945. Uh, but on the other hand, there was, uh, you know, there was sort of this benefit to, uh, to the art, art going art loving public in, in the United States a couple of years later. The other question I had about that too, was uh, in reading about that uh, certain time when Captain Farmer gets these orders, and then these soldiers decide to uh, join together to protest sending the paintings. It seemed like there was a question of, was this Nazi or, or were these paintings considered prizes of war and loot? or that the U.S. was taking back, which is one view. And then I see where there's like sort of a suggestion that uh, the Wiesbaden Museum uh, that Farmer had been trying to put back together to protect these paintings, that there was expressions of concern that these uh, 202 paintings wouldn't be properly cared for, and we just want to keep them over in D.C. for safekeeping. Do you think that that was sort of a, a veil, or do you think there was any truth to that, the the concern for the safety of these works? It's 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 tough to say. I mean, I, there, it is important, as you as you say, to point out that, I mean, that the Truman administration was very consistent and, you know, the, 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 the army was very consistent uh, throughout that this was a protection mission, that this was safe, you know, this was an extension of uh, their role of safeguarding German patrimony. Um, the argument was, was made that, the, that, that, as you say, the Wiesbaden collecting point was not, uh, was somehow not fit uh, you know, was not climate controlled well enough or secure enough to protect um, the artwork that was that was being stored there. Um, the, I mean, the, there 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 are a number of problems about that rationale and how it was put forward at the time, which you know, critics uh, on in in America in 1945 and 46, when this information began to sort of leak out, what was happening. 
which which they pointed to and which I think we can clearly see in hindsight as well. And that's that there were thousands and thousands of artworks being stored at the Wiesbaden collecting point. It was one of uh, several collecting points set up by the army. Um, and the one in Wiesbaden was specifically tasked with, with uh, assembling and cataloging and preparing for restitution the artworks that were not looted, that the artworks, in other words, that were uh, part of German public collections for the most part, that had been displaced during the conflict, mostly you know, in order to protect them from Allied uh, air raids. Um, so there were, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of, of priceless artworks, um, archives, you know, books, prints uh, that were that were under farmers' care at the collecting point, and yet only 200 works of quote the greatest importance uh, were were ordered to be transferred, you know, across Europe and and across the ocean to the United States in November of 1945. So, uh, you know, it, it, I think that there's plenty of argument to, to say that, to say that this, you know, that this wasn't necessarily as, as altruistic or as in the, in the benefit of the artworks themselves as uh, the administration at the time made it seem. I think, you know, to your point about whether, uh, you know, evoking the, the concept of spoils of war, you know, that's that's exactly the kind of, um, I guess I would say, regardless of what the intent was behind it, and we haven't, you know, been able to put as fine a point as we'd like to on that. We know that these, the discussions about moving certain German artworks, you know, public collection artworks out of Germany was already floated earlier at the Potsdam conference earlier in the summer of 45. Um, but we haven't been able to put a really fine point on who and why, you know, the, the powers that be decided this, but, but the point about spoils of war is exactly what Walter Farmer and the other monuments men who drafted and signed this protest document pointed to. They were, you know, essentially saying, regardless of the intent behind this action, what does it look like to the world? Uh, and what it looks like is just what what you what you pointed to, Stephanie. One of the categories on the Cincinnati Art Museum website for the exhibition is uh, art and injustice. And there are several paintings under that category. How did you decide, you and your group, decide that that was the category and how you would couch that? Yeah, so as as Christy and I started really figuring out what we were trying to do here, what, what we were trying to say, you know, about this moment in history in the exhibition, um, we realized that this the sort of journey of these 202 paintings was really at the heart of it, because that is what, you know, both implicated the Monuments Men and Walter Farmer in, in Europe, and also what uh, sort of allowed us to tell the full story of this touring exhibition two years later in, in the U.S. of these paintings. But, you know, it's there is a certain popular um, uh, understanding, I think, of the Monuments Men now, in large part, thanks to that uh, the 2014 movie that George Clooney uh, did. Um, but at the same time, you know, this is not 
what happened to art and cultural patrimony during and after World War II is not at the forefront of everybody's, uh, 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 you know, imagination, I think. And so we realized that you know, in order to put a fine point on the significance of this transfer and the, you know, the story of what happened to these, uh, the Berlin 202, we had to give, or we should give our visitors a sense of how art was used, uh, the policies and practices of the Nazi regime in the 1930s um, and, and in through the, through the war during, you know, their, uh, annexation and occupation of other European countries. So that section on art and injustice is sort of tries to encapsulate some of the categories of how art was uh, impacted by the Nazi regime and, and, and by World War II. So, you know, we look at looted art, looting of art, you know, which is perhaps what, you know, we most uh, one of the categories we, we think of most readily of, you know, how from top to bottom, the Nazi organization was uh, very focused on acquiring works of art uh, by theft uh, or by, you know, sort of with the veneer of legality as they were um, invading and annexing countries in Europe, largely, you know, from Jewish collectors, Jewish dealers. Um, but we also point in that in that section to some of the sort of structural policies, how how the Nazi regime used art as uh, cultural propaganda before the war, um, and you know with the Entartete Kunst or degenerate art, so sort of branding of uh, large swaths of modern art, especially German Expressionism, as un un Aryan, un un German, and and sort of pushing those artists uh, out of um, out of the canon, out, not allowing them to practice, uh, sanctioning them, and, and in fact, seizing many thousands of artworks in those categories from German public collections and sometimes selling them abroad in Switzerland to generate, you know, foreign currency for the for the Nazi uh, war machine. And and you know and 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 looking at, at other situations, uh, some lesser known in in that section of how Nazis, the, how the regime used and abused, I would argue, art. The Kokoschka uh, portrait that's in the exhibition that uh, is also, I believe, in Cincinnati's collection. That uh, sort of is a good example of what you're talking about. How was the exhibition laid out? And I know that from the photos I've seen of it, the Kokoschka is uh, laid against a red background, as is um, the entire exhibition. And uh, so, like, when you're walking through, what was the design, uh, the thoughts that went into how the exhibition was presented to viewers? Yeah, um, the design process is always is always interesting because, you know, we have... A, certain spaces in the museum that we use for these special exhibitions um, that are, you know, those are fixed uh, uh, galleries and you can build out those spaces in different, in different ways. We have a fabulous design team at the Cincinnati Art Museum. That's a pleasure to work with exhibition designer and, and graphic designers. Um, this, this particular suite of galleries that it, it's sort of, there, there are multiple entry points. And so you can't really do a, a completely linear narrative. You know, you can't funnel people in one direction through the exhibition. 
um, which in, in this in this case I think is fine because we sort of have at the at the core the of the exhibition the section on the Berlin 202 where we've been able to borrow four of the paintings that originally were part of that group that made the journey in 1945. We've been able to borrow four of those from the uh, State Museums of Berlin and then augmenting those with works from our collection, from the Cincinnati Art Museum's collection by artists uh, who, who you would have seen in, in that 1948-49 exhibition uh, to give a sense of sort of the, all, the, the all-star quality of, you know, the, the sort of uh, art historical textbook quality of this collection that toured the United States. Um, and then, and then the other sections of the show include the the art and the the art and injustice section, and then also um, uh, a section on Walter Farmer himself, and and sort of part of which looks at what was happening at the Central Collecting Point in 1946, and the the genesis of the Wiesbaden Manifesto, and also some of the other activities that um, that they were undertaking uh, at the Collecting Point. Um, and then also Walter Farmer's legacy here in the region. He was a lived in Cincinnati for for some four decades after the war, um, and and supported uh, cultural institutions, including the art museum. And and so we have some some of the paintings that he gave and works on paper. Um, so you know you the the red color you mentioned was. Uh, I was sort of inspired by one of the by the um, the exhibition catalogs that were produced for the army uh, tour of paintings in 1948 and 49. Um, and they have these bright red covers uh, that, that uh, I, I don't know, it sort of took me back to a to that time. And of course, there are many old masters in this exhibition. They love saturated wall colors. Um, but seeing the Kokushka and Jaflensky and some of these German expressionist works that we have also on that wall color was really interesting because you, you know, we normally see those on on white cube type of walls. But yeah. Glad you glad you caught caught that <laughs> <laughs> that part of the exhibition. Oh yeah. What would you say uh are some of the examples of works in the show that you think uh give a good taste of the exhibition? Um well that the Kokushka portrait that you mentioned is is particularly special because it was in the, you know, in terms of representing what what happened to artworks during the 1930s? It was in the uh, the original uh, degenerate art exhibition in Munich uh, in 1937. Um, it was seized. It was part of a public collection in Germany, the uh, uh, Volksbank Museum in Essen, um, and and was seized along with you know hundreds and thousands of artworks from public collections and put on view in this sort of shame exhibition that, that was mounted in Munich. And then it was among uh, the group of works that were sent to be sold in Lucerne at the, at an auction, uh, as I mentioned, to raise capital. So it has a unique sort of trajectory in, in coming to our collection and, and sort of a physical manifestation of 
some of these policies. Um, in the main section, uh, you know, the, the four paintings from Berlin are particularly special. Uh, the Botticelli's uh, portrait of uh, ideal portrait of a woman is is just a gorgeous Renaissance uh, work of art uh, in any any context. I mean, this is a, a sort of a unique exhibition in a way for us because it's 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 more about you know the history of these paintings of where where what that what happened to them in the 20th century more than about artist biography or about uh you know the subject matter of the artworks um but that's that is one uh all four of the berlin paintings are just are just really wonderful to to have in context in, in a different context you'd see them at the heart of the Gemälde Gallery in Berlin, the, the 202 paintings that that this exhibition is, is, is talks about today, as, as they did before the war, uh, form the, the core of the Gemälde Gallery of the state uh, museums in Berlin. Um, so it's it's a it's it's always fun to see uh, to see artworks in different contexts. Um, and then in the section. On Walter Farmer, we had uh, there's a, a, a self-portrait by a Moravian painter um, uh, at the end of the 18th century named Martin Kvadal, which I think is a is a is a is a beautiful artwork. And it you know it uh, Walter bought it later in life in in Bologna, but it's it's one of the one of the sort of visitor favorites in our galleries. Um, he he bequeathed it to the museum. Or there are two paintings uh, that are Madonna and Child, I believe, and one of them was from the Houtstucker collection. That was yeah. uh, sort of an example. Like this exhibition, really does have a taste of every type of uh, almost every type of issue that's come up with World War II art with the Houtstucker one. Would you describe a little bit about that one? Yeah, that's a painting in our collection. Um, Jacques Houtstucker was the was the sort of premier dealer of old master paintings in in Amsterdam in the first couple of decades of the 20th century um and he uh you know is is his collection has been the subject of very famous restitution cases as i'm sure you and your listeners know um but he his his story is you know tragic and and exemplary in many ways i think but uh, but the facts are that he he escaped with his family, you know, at the last possible second as the Nazis invaded Holland um, and and died in the passage um, across the uh, across to England in a freak accident. Um, but his gallery was, you know, very specifically targeted by um by Goering, um by uh Hitler's uh also by Hitler's art uh, squad and so both his business and his stock of something like 1400 paintings were essentially uh you know stolen um put under under sort of trusteeship by a Nazi official and and many of the works were destined for Hitler's planned a museum in Linz in his hometown uh, uh, and, and many hundreds of them were essentially sort of co-opted by Hermann Goering for his his collection. The painting in our exhibition is not is one that that um, we believe uh, came uh, le- you know came intentionally and legally out of Holland before the war. Um, 
but it, you know, it, it, it sort of is a placeholder for the many, many hundreds of uh, works that are still unidentified lost uh, from this collection that have not, that have not found their way back to their rightful owners, which are the descendants of, of Jacques uh, Hausstecker. Have you had uh, opportunity to hear reactions from visitors who have been in uh, the galleries for this exhibition? Yeah, yeah, we've we've had good response. Um, it's sort of the timing. This exhibition was supposed to originally planned to happen last summer, but uh, COVID had other plans for us, of course. And uh, as the timing works out now, we're sort of. Um, I think a lot a lot of people are eager for a, a reason to come back to the art museum. Um, and so the, the timing is is working out well for this exhibition. We've also had, you know, um, uh, I've had stories already just in the couple of weeks it's been open, come out of the woodwork from from people in our community who, you know, one gentleman, you know, who, who I've known a uh, supporter of the museum, uh, you know, he said, oh, my gosh, I I was at the exhibition in 1948 at the National Gallery uh, of Art in Washington. I was eight years old, but I, you know, I remember it. It's burned into my mind. I remember this painting and this painting, and this painting and, you know, amazing, you know, and then another I'll be meeting with an, another sort of friend of a friend of, you know, of the museum who's who's relative is uh was was one of the uh was one of the monuments men um and so you know there, there are lots of connections that are that are coming out and of course with uh, a local figure being sort of at the center of the exhibition uh we're you know we're also hearing lots of really fond uh memories of walter farmer who was you know he 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 was a he lectured at the art museum and at the at the university uh, during his life, and and he was an interior uh, interior designer, and so there are a lot of his his former clients and friends that that have come forward uh, in the opening events, and uh, you know, and subsequently. What's the message that you uh, and your group uh, wanted to convey to visitors that you would hope would be a takeaway, or maybe there are a few of them. Yeah, I mean, I think that the sort of for me the and and for Christy, I can speak for my co-curator as well. I think the big the sort of the big message that that we've we've taken away from working on this project, and I hope it comes through uh, in the exhibition, is just is really the you know it's a the power of art. I mean, it's a big it's sort of a, one of those big dumb issues, but those are sometimes the most important, I think. But I mean, when we think about um, you know, any any topic having to do with the Monuments Men and what the Monuments Fine Arts and Archives section of the Army, that this was created in 1943, in the winter of 1943, uh, just very shortly after the uh, after the America joins the war. And that, you know, that this, that these, that there was such a, a focus, uh, even at a time when there was, you know, massive loss of life, destruction of of of, of families and lives and property, uh, that there should be also, you know, an attention paid to what needs to be preserved, what should be preserved for a shared humanity. Um, 
and that, that that sort of attention was resourced to the level that it was that uh, during the war and after the war that that these uh, that these heroes really these men and women volunteered to you know who were you know I, I learned recently that the average age of the monuments men and women was forty so these were not young people they were you know middle of their careers and they you know volunteered to to go to Europe um, and and try to help save all of this culture uh, for the future. Um, and then, you know, this, this sort of carries through, I think, to the second part of the story, the 1948-49 exhibition of these artworks uh, going around the United States, that it was just, you know, front page news in every one of the 13 cities that this exhibition traveled to. So that's, you know, that's another side of the, the power of, 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 of this, this art that, that people, you know, it's over one and a half percent of the U.S. population saw this exhibition in one form or another, which is sort of astounding to me that two and a half million people uh, went to their local museums and, and to see one of the, one of the great collections of, of European painting. So, I mean, that that that's sort of the the takeaway uh, for me. Um, is is it's a different kind of exhibition uh, from the ones that I often do. I think because we're not just looking at an artist or a subject matter or a style or uh, we're you know we're looking at why why does it matter where who who takes care of artworks and where they travel and uh, you know how they're used during times of conflict. And as far as the message about, uh, well, from the Wiesbaden Manifesto about protecting cultural patrimony, how do you think that the exhibition impresses that on the viewer? Is there a focus on historical materials that um, bring that message home, or how is that addressed? Yeah, we. I mean, we've we've used uh, we've used archival photographs um, and sort of mural treatments in parts of the exhibition to try to bring the visitor back, you know, to the 1940s and sort of impress a, a, upon them the, you know, what it would be like to discover these priceless masterpieces in a salt mine uh, in central Germany, you know, in, 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 in the summer of 1945. Um, and then also having, you know, a facsimile of the, of the, of the Wiesbaden Manifesto. And you see that, you know, the, typewriter ribbon is sort of skipping on some of the some of the letters um but you read this impassioned uh highly principled moral stance um laid down you know by army officers at you know considerable risk to their uh to what they were doing and who they were i mean they're they're protesting an action, uh, you know, of, of their own army. Um, and, and so sort of to have that, you know, put in front of you, I think is really powerful. And, and we also have, um, thanks to Walter Farmer's, uh, daughter, we have in the exhibition, a, um, his, his, uh, the award that he was given by the German government, the Große Verdienstkreuz, which is the highest, uh, honor that the that the German state gives to individuals, and this uh, this was bestowed on Walter Farmer a few years before he died, um, and sort of serves as 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 a recognition on the part of 
the current German state of, you know, what what an really important and principled stance he he helped lead uh, in those very very you know almost unimaginably difficult weeks and months uh, in 1945 at the end of of the year of the war in Europe. And I believe you mentioned uh, or referenced a catalog, and so there is a, a full catalog that includes all of these materials. Yes, yes. here it is. <laughs> I have a copy right here. Uh, the The title and subtitle are flipped around, so the book is called "The Berlin Masterpieces in America: Paintings, Politics, and the Monuments Men," and it came out last summer. You know when when the exhibition would have been. Um, and uh, yes, you can find some really fascinating essays in there that really that sort of take this, take what we could do in the exhibition a little bit further also. Um, our colleague in, in Berlin, Neville Rowley, who's a curator at the Gemälde Gallery, um, I'll, I'll call out his contribution in particular because he sort of to- told the story of what happened to these 202 paintings uh, in 1949 and onward when they returned to German to German soil. And it's a fascinating story because they continued to be uh, a political sort of diplomatic football, um, you know, traveling around Europe to sort of shore up uh, shore up uh, sentiment, you know, European sentiment uh, against uh, the the sort of perceived threat of of so of the Soviet uh, of Soviet communism uh, in the Cold War. So there, you know, and 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 we have an essay on on provenance research on what why is it important to that we know about the history of paintings, movements, or artworks by, you know, and that is written by Nancy Yaiti, who's the leading scholar of provenance research in this country, I think it's safe to say. So there's some, some really interesting contributions, some of the documents reproduced in the back and uh, very significantly also for our partners in, in, in Berlin, we have a full illustrated checklist of those 202 paintings that made the trip in 1945 and were part of that exhibition. One of those essays was going to lead me into the next question I had for you, which was how you would describe the importance of provenance research in your work and in this exhibition. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's absolutely fundamental to to, uh, you know, a lot of parts of my work as a curator, as a art historian, Um but you know, if, if you don't know where something has been and 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 you know lived up until now, then you know you you can't really properly situate it in in history, uh, and you and you can't be a, a good steward of it in the present. I think um, a lot of you know, as you you know well, I, I uh, you know a lot of provenance research sort of hinges on on rightful ownership in the present. Um, which is, you know, incredibly important as a, you know, someone who works for a, a public museum, steward of a collection held in trust for the public. That's um, an essential part of of my research when we're bringing works uh, into the, you know, into the collection by purchase or gift. Um, it, you know, it also turns out to be, you know, one of the sort of one of the top sort of research topics that come to us from the community from, you know, as we serve as sort of a, um, uh, an art history research resource for, for our communities. Um, And that's, that's a big one, 
there as well. Of course, when we're doing big loan exhibitions, we're bringing paintings from other countries uh, in, in, you know, for exhibition, there's, there's the, uh, an important component of provenance research to that too, because, you know, other museums don't want to lend works if they think that there will be a legal claim placed upon them when they, when they enter our country. Um, but, you know, but beyond that, the sort of big, the, the bigger ticket issues, I think, are, you know, it, it helps, helps keep, it helps keep thing, things in perspective for me, knowing, you know, that where this portrait by Van Dyke had, has been hanging for the last 350 years and, and, you know, the, the, the sort of expense and the care and that have been taken over it. Uh, as it travels down through the centuries. Um, and, you know, also at the end of the day, as I'm sure you, you know, and, 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 and your, your, your audience knows it's, it's really fun to do provenance research. It's, it's the sort of uh, sleuthing, the sort of, uh, you know, historical detective work that I think um, a lot of us uh, really, really value. What would you uh, give as advice for someone who is looking to pursue a career as a curator or a provenance researcher or a meld of the two uh, recommended resources or paths that you have found have helped you? Yeah, well, just, um, you know, look at look at art as much as you can. I think that's that's sort of the, you know, and and especially today, you know, unlike when I was sort of coming up in this, but people who are coming up now uh, available through the the web and you can really study collections uh, at a great remove now. I mean, there's nothing that, that there's nothing that will ever replace the encounter between a person and a work of art, you know, in the flesh. Um, But, you know, even in times like this, when we're our you know travel is much more limited and and you know you might not be able to to go to go to you know museums in other cities or countries that you want to um, there are those resources you can learn collections online and one thing that I always do uh, thinking about you know history of ownership and provenance I mean I'm always fascinated by when I go to museums look at the label and look at the credit line and see you know which is the sort of the information usually at the bottom of of the who you know who made it and what's it called of the label and and it will tell you often whether the artwork was a gift uh, whether it was a purchase uh, when it entered a museum collection and that's always a sort of an interesting jumping off point as you start to try to understand the formation of art collections and how artworks move um, through time. Uh, But yeah, there's, I mean, really in the end, it's, 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 you know, looking at as, as much as you can and starting to make those connections. I think about it all as this sort of big web of, of connections and this more you learn about, different periods of art history and different, you know, tastes in throughout time and collecting and, and, and different, uh, dealers and owners and trends in, in the art market and in philanthropy and in how museums develop, it all starts to weave, weave together. Any books or websites specifically that you would point to to say that you find especially helpful or recent books that you've run across? 
Um, for well, for the, for the topic. Besides the catalog. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, for for the the topic at hand here, um, uh, Lynn Nichols' book, "The Rape of Europa" from 1998, I want to say, um, was really one of the sort of foundational books of this whole of this whole area of study, and uh, timed, you know, right within a year or two of the Washington Conference and the principles on 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 uh, holocaust restitution um it, it was really sort of one of the one of the touched up the liter the literature that, that that sort of kicked off i think our modern era of interest in world war ii uh provenance research uh, so i always recommend that it's just fascinating read um very dense but very readable um and gives you sort of the the whole panoply of of what art was doing uh during the war and who was doing it to art uh so that's that's one that i would i would direct anyone anyone to are there any exhibitions that uh played a key role in helping this current exhibition uh come to life um i i can't think of a direct uh I mean, in a, in a sense, any exhibition you've worked on sort of plays into the next one, I guess. But I would point, in terms of other exhibitions, I would give a call out to um, to the to the Worcester Museum in Massachusetts. Uh, the Worcester Museum of Art right now has an exhibition uh, that takes a very close look at a specific case of one family's collection of. Uh, artwork that was looted by the Nazis and sort of the, you know, subsequent generations uh, work to reclaim some of those artworks. Um, So if you check out the Worcester uh, Museum in Massachusetts, uh, I think that's a, you know, it's it's a really good case study. Um, And we're going to bring the curator of of that uh, exhibition to, uh, to our symposium that we'll have on September 23rd, September 24th, um, this fall. And we'll bring uh, a, a couple of a couple of folks from different angles to try to tease out some of the themes of, of our exhibition and sort of push it forward into, you know, contemporary relevancy today. Um, and we're very excited that uh, Dr. Richard Curran, the uh, ambassador at large from the Smithsonian uh, Institution, who has done quite a bit with the cultural Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative and sort of the, the the new partnership between the Smithsonian and the U.S. Army to to sort of re, rebuild the Monuments Men program. Dr. Curran will will be our keynote speaker in September. Um, so uh, stay tuned for that. The information will be. Uh, available on our website pretty soon. Will any of those uh, speakers from the symposium be available afterwards online? Is there a way for anyone who can't be there to access it later? Um, I'm working, we're seeing if we're going to be able to make it, what kind of a virtual, uh, if we can do this virtually or if we're or if we'll be able to record uh, the symposium, but I'm 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 going to try to you know try try to be able to get that as widely distributed one way or the other as as possible. And I've heard other uh, curators discuss the ideas uh, 
for and the the problems with keeping exhibition materials uh, online, say, um, you know, on different platforms. And I wasn't sure what your experience had been or if there had been talk of that for this exhibition. Um, We haven't put, we haven't done a huge online component for this exhibition. The one thing that we, we did do in an uh, sort of a one of our early our efforts to sort of improve accessibility of the content um, of the exhibition is we've recorded um, audio descriptions and and we've recorded all of the exhibition text the you know text panels for the sections and the and the labels for the artworks um, so that people can either listen to that while they're in the exhibition but it, it also lives on the on our website so so that you know people could access that uh, even when they're not you know not in the exhibition um and that that should we should be able to have that you know have a have a good long afterlife um we have you know but there are there are other materials that that you know for various reasons we you know we have a a, a film clip in the exhibition from a newsreel from 19 19- 48, which 46, which is really fascinating because it shows Walter Farmer and the activities in the Wiesbaden collecting point happening in real time. Um, but again, they're, you know, they're rights holders for that. And so we can't necessarily just broadcast uh, everything out on the web. So that is not on your website. No, you have to no. be in person to enjoy yeah. that. Okay. Well, <laughs> Well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure uh, learning more about this exhibition, and uh, I appreciate your time. And is there anything that I have not touched on that you think would be important uh, to say about the exhibition or any of the symposium that's coming up? No, I think you. I mean, I think this was this was really wonderful. You you you, you hit you hit uh, all of the main points of the exhibition, which is I have to say hard to do because I've there's I've never worked on a project that has this many interlocking stories, and I I you know to the, uh, aspiring curators out there, I wouldn't recommend it. Next, I'm not going to do this complicated an exhibition again. It's sort of, <laughs> but no, thank you. This has been a really wonderful uh, a wonderful chat, Stephanie. Thank you. There will be a link in the show notes to learn more about the Paintings, Politics, and Monuments Men exhibition. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. You can also email your comments to Stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.